own Bible, we will be in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 this week, as well as next week as we conclude this series called Generous Hearts and Open Hands. And while you're opening up your Bibles, let me uh, let you know that uh, last week you noticed likely that the board was up at Spruce Lake. You may not have known where we were. We were up at Spruce Lake Retreat Center. Every year we go on a board retreat where we can pray, where we can uh, ask the Lord to help us take the vision and the mission of our church and really get our church moving in line with it. We can strategize. We hear each other's testimonies of what God is doing in uh, each of our lives. We encourage one another. We love each other. We recalibrate so that we can love you better and serve you better as well. I got to tell you right now, we have the most amazing board I have ever served with. They're just absolutely amazing. The unity and the love that we have for each other, the ability for us to kind of disagree at times, but yet love each other through it. It's uh, envious, I'm sure, of a lot of pastors. So it, it is, we're at a good place right now, and I'm really excited. And uh, next week, you're going to learn uh, part of what came out of this past weekend. Uh, so you don't want to miss next week. You'll want to be here for that. I think it's going to be good for you to be here for that. Well, let me get you thinking, and man, I wish I wasn't up on this stage. I really wish I was in your front room, your living room, and you and I could just talk back and forth on this. That's one of the draws. I know preaching is important, and I'm called to preach, but if I have my, my uh, druthers, you and I would be at a diner, we would be in your living room, we'd be in your office, my office, and we would just talk back and forth. That would be what I really would love to do. But I'm preaching right now, so let me get you to think. And that's something that we need to learn to do at church. When you're hearing a sermon, think. And I know, especially when I preach, I give you a lot of information. Actually, this is a super simple sermon. Super simple. But when you get a lot of information, it's hard to really think because I keep going on to the next point. I get that. All my sermons are on the web. All of our sermons are on the website in note form, so you can go back and really, really work through it. But let me get you thinking. Ready? Here's a question. I'm going to give you a series of questions. How generous are you with your money and your possessions? Now, you could be really radically honest because you're not having to respond outwardly. You could just really look inward and go, okay, well, how generous am I with my money and possessions? And let me help you kind of work through that and examine your own heart. Let me help you unzip it. You want to unzip your heart and just look ooh, courageously at times what's really going on in there. Are you eager to give generously? Are you eager? Amen. <laughs> Leah, was that you? When Pastor Kyle's away, it just that restraint just goes. Are you eager to give generously? Now, really evaluate that. Is there really an eagerness in you to give generously? When you see the needs that others have, do you begin to think and begin to pray, Lord, how do you want to use me to meet them? Not even really should I, although that's important, but how do you want to use me to meet those needs? Well, let me ask this one. This is a really important one, and this is one I have to really evaluate. Does your heart feel compassion when you see people in need, 
Do you regularly, and I mean like regularly throughout the week, look at what you have and consider giving some away to help other people or even maybe selling things that you have and taking that money and giving it to support ministries around the world or people that are in need? Do you do any of this? Is this present in your heart? Because all of that helps you answer the question, how generous are you with your money and your possessions? Well, you can evaluate yourself even further. Let me give you another question. What did I give? Honestly ask, what did I give last year, 2023, to the kingdom of God and the poor and the needy? And can I willingly increase what I give this year? So what did I give last year? And can I willingly increase what I give to the poor and the needy in the kingdom of God this year? If you are frugal, that's a very kind way of saying tight-fisted. You've heard of that, tight-fisted. That means you close your hands over your monies and your possessions. If you are frugal, there is every indication at the heart level that you do not trust God and that you are not able to admit you own nothing. If you're tight-fisted, you have an ownership mentality. I worked hard for this money. I got degrees so I could get this job. I, that's my money. And these are my possessions that I bought with it. But the Bible radically tells you a different story. It's not your money because God gave you the job. God gave you the health. God gave you the abilities. God gave you the means. God gave you the job. God's given you your home. God's given you your clothes. God's given you everything. It's all his. It's all got his name on it. He's giving it to you to steward it, to meet your needs and the needs of your family and through you to meet the needs of people who are in need. Do you understand that? That's what the Bible is telling you, that everything you possess in your hand, if you could keep your hands open on it, not become tight-fisted with an ownership mentality, keep your hand open and realize everything you've got, everything belongs to God, and he's given it to you for your needs, and he's given it to you that, so that through you, through you, he can meet the needs of others. That's a heart on its way to generosity. And it brings us back to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So can I ask that you stand with me? We're going to read verses 1 through 7. And I'm going to read it at a fairly quick clip. So just follow along if you would. Now it is superfluous. I'll explain what that word means in a minute. For me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. 
Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You may be seated. All right, I promise you this is a super simple message. I'm going to show you three things. I'm going to show you the influence of a generous Christian. I'm going to show you the challenge that generous Christians give. And then I'm going to show you the heart, how the heart looks for a generous Christian. Number one, and we're going to get so practical as we go. The influence of generosity. I'm not going to read all of verses one and two, but let me just read a little. So look at your Bibles if you would. The influence of generosity. Now it is superfluous. All right, what's that word mean? It means more than, more than is necessary. It's more than what is needed. In other words, he's saying, I've already been telling you this. I really don't need to tell you it again. It's superfluous. But let me just say it one more time. And what he's saying is this. He's challenging the church at Corinth, who for an entire year has been setting aside money on a capital campaign fund for the relief of the Christians at Jerusalem. The Christians at Jerusalem are incredibly poor. They are suffering off the scale. And so Corinth has been for a whole year taking up a collection. It's all going to go with Paul and his team to Jerusalem. It's going to be given to the saints there. But it stirred up these churches in northern Greece, Macedonian churches. You've got Berea. You've got Philippi. You've got Thessalonica. They're actually very, very poor. The church of Corinth is actually well off. These churches are dirt poor. And yet the example of the church in Achaia, that's Corinth, is stirring them up, motivating them to take up a collection to sell things, to give the money to Paul so that together with the gift at Corinth, it can really do an amazing work of relieving the, the suffering of the Christians in Jerusalem. So that's what's going on. And what we see is generous people stir us up to become generous ourselves. If you know anybody that is truly generous, you cannot come away from them without wanting to be more generous yourself. My brother-in-law years ago by the way, this is the same brother-in-law that died uh, three years ago at age 57 from COVID. He entered full-time pastoral ministry years ago. And when he did, he took a really severe pay cut from his job. He was in management at a Stone, Stone Corporation. They made cardboard boxes, corrugated cardboard boxes, exporting them around the world. He took a big pay cut to go to ministry. And my wife and I, we had three children at the time, said, how can we help them? We didn't have a whole lot extra, but we had cable TV. So we came to our three children. We said, kids, what would you think if we stopped our cable TV, $35 a month, and gave that money to your Uncle Lee and your Aunt Diana because they're really struggling financially? We let them think about that for a little bit. We came back to them, and they eagerly, their favorite cousins are the kids of Uncle Lee and, and Diana, and they said eagerly, yes, let's do that. So we cut off cable TV. And for years, we sent that money to my brother-in-law and my sister-in-law. Now, that's not the end of the story, and that's not meant to bring any kind of honor to us. What motivated us to do that? What motivated us to do that was we had a financial crisis, Denise and I, our van broke down many, many years ago, 
It was a $1,000 repair. I told my mom about it. My mom told my siblings. My sister, Debbie, my oldest sister down in Morgantown, Pennsylvania, her and her husband don't make very much money. They work at a Christian school and a Christian camp. But they had scraped up enough money to send us a $1,000 check to fix our van. We were absolutely floored by their generosity. It happened that years later, they got into a financial crisis. And at that point, Denise and I were able to write the exact same amount of a check, $1,000, and send it right back to them. That's what generosity looks like. When people are generous to you, it motivates you to become increasingly generous. This is what Paul is saying at the church at Corinth. Your gift, this one-year capital relief fund for the Jerusalem Christians, is stirring up the Macedonian Christians. They have nothing, but they're begging for the opportunity to give along with your gift so that it could be a sizable enough gift to really relieve suffering and they gave gladly. That's the influence of generosity. I told you this was a simple message. But number two, the challenge of generous people. Look at verse three, if you would. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Denise and I have experienced having people challenge us with how we manage our money. How would you do with somebody in our church coming alongside who knew you and loved you and said, I want to come in to your financial picture. I want to know what you make. I want to know how you give. I want to know how you manage God's money. And I want to come alongside you and help you with that. How would you respond if somebody did that to you? I could tell you how a lot of us respond. My money is my money and it's off limits to you. That's a private area of my life. No, it's not. No, it's not. There are no non-transparent areas of your life, Christian. You're gonna see that when we take the Lord's Supper. Well, Denise and I had experienced this. Somebody coming alongside and challenging us. You see, the problem was this. Earlier in our marriage, we did what a lot of us do, and that is we got, we got into the credit card dance. You know, you get onto a 0% interest card, you transfer all your money to it, you got six months, maybe a year, and when that runs out, gets close to running out, you transfer it to get just another 0% credit card. We did that, we could hardly get out of debt. You can hardly find your way out of credit card debt doing that. And what it did was it enabled foolish money management in our marriage, and we found ourselves 17 years ago in significant debt, and it was putting a strain on our marriage. A couple from our church, a husband and wife from our church, knew us well, noticed the strain, and arranged a meeting to sit down with us and said, what's going on? You guys aren't yourselves. And when they did that, we opened up and we shared with them the financial mess that we had gotten into. What happened next changed our marriage, changed our lives. They exhorted us. 
they admonished us lovingly, gently, to manage our monies better, to not get into debt again. And right there on the spot, they took out their checkbook and wrote a $10,000 check and got us out of complete debt. We have never gotten into debt again since, except for our mortgage. That changed our lives and it enabled us to come alongside people and do the same thing for them. This is what the Apostle Paul is doing. He's challenging the Corinthians. You said a year ago you were going to set aside money for a year, but you're struggling with it. I'm going to send people ahead of me. I'm going to be there soon, but I've got three men I'm sending. And they're going to come and they're going to challenge you to complete your commitment. Now, what would you do if God did that through somebody into your life? And I wonder, do you have anybody in your life that is holding you accountable other than your spouse, which does not make the best accountability partner? Do you have anybody other than your spouse who is holding you accountable for your money? The answer is almost universally no for the people that I ask. Is your attitude that your money is yours and you will do with it what you want? If that's your attitude, you have not yet gained the freeing perspective of the gospel that Christians hold each other accountable in all areas of our lives and that we come alongside to encourage each other to give generously. But how do we give generously and how are we to encourage each other to give? Point number three, my final one. Very simple sermon. We've looked at the influence of generosity. We've looked at the challenge that generous people are to give. Now we see the freedom of generosity. Look at what he says in verse six. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Next week, I hope you're here, you're gonna hear the most in-depth of any of these sermons, uh, treatment against prosperity theology. But let me just put it, this way for now to get you ready for it. Chuck Swindoll said, God promises to meet your needs, not to meet your greed. It's not that you put a dollar in the offering and $100 comes into your bank account that week. It's not that you see a poor person and you give and all of a sudden you're going to be showered with lottery winnings. That is not the way God works. That is heresy. That is garbage theology. It's what Paul is saying is this. You've got a farmer because almost all of them were agrarian. You've got a farmer with a bag of seeds. It's for the spring. It's to plant so that you can give a, get a harvest of barley but that seed all winter as your stores and your provisions are going down and they're dwindling, the temptation is to take that bag of seeds and bring it into the mill and crush it, make flour so that you can have bread for your family. But the farmer's got to remember, no, I need that seed for the spring. And if I use it now, I'm not going to have much to plant. And if you only plant a little, you're only going to harvest a little. That's what Paul is saying. His point is this, if you spend so much money on yourself because you do not trust God to give generously, then you're going to miss out on the bounty of God's blessing. Let me show you a word in this. It, it occurs twice in verse 6. The word is bountifully. That word means blessing. 
Those who give as a blessing to others will experience God's blessings in return. That doesn't always mean money. Let me tell you one way that you can know you're experiencing God's blessings. When you buy something with God's money, having approached him for permission, that's so un-American. But when you do that, you will be satisfied with that and won't want to trade it in for the new shiny thing that comes. You're going to rest in what you've gotten. But if you've got a closed fist, a tight fist, and you spend your seed on yourself rather than giving generously to others, then you're going to buy something at Amazon and two months later realize it didn't give you the bang for the buck you thought, and then you're going to buy something else hoping that that will. You'll never be satisfied. One of the blessings that God gives to generous givers is incredible satisfaction. So you don't have to keep buying. And we get to see this principle in verse uh, Proverbs 11. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. Those who hold on to their possessions with an ownership mentality, they're going to experience God holding on to his blessings. They will not receive his full blessings. And in God's kingdom, prosperity does not come from greedy self-indulgence. It comes from generous giving. But the farmer, you remember the farmer with that bag of seed, he might be saying, well, if I scatter too much seed, the birds are just going to eat it. I'm going to waste it. It's going to go to irresponsible people. They're going to spend it on things they shouldn't spend it on. Or maybe the ground is not going to be fertile enough and the, and the seed won't penetrate. The, the land will be inert. So maybe, I'll, maybe what I'll do is I'll keep some of the seeds and we'll make some of the bread over the winter. And all of a sudden, that poor farmer finds himself with very little seed and will surely have very little harvest. Sowing generously, giving generously is an act of faith. And Paul is about to teach us how to do it wisely. Look at verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful Giver. Let me give you a principle. You'll see it on the screen. And then let me, let me unpack it. Give from the lees and not from the shuns. Don't give out of condemnation, coercion, manipulation, but give personally, thoughtfully, willingly, joyfully. Give from the lees and not from the shuns. What's that mean? Here we go. We got four and they're going to get really practical. Give personally. Look what he says in verse seven. Each one must give. Man, let me, let me uh, those of you who are married, let me, let me uh, encourage you to, to not do something. Don't just leave the giving what you give to this church or what you to give to other, what you give as a family to other ministries or to the poor people. Don't just leave that to your wife. Thinking it's better off you don't know how much she's giving. You're, you're frugal if that's you. You're tight-fisted. You're giving permission, but you have no joy in it. You're not yet generous. 
as a couple, you talk about this, but each one is to give. Each one must give. You know what that means? This is so beautiful when you understand this. Some of you can't give what I can give. And some of you can give more than I can give. It's not like there is some socialistic decree coming down from on high with ecclesiastical authority saying everybody give 30%. No, it's each one must give. You give what God is inspiring you to give. And I give what God is inspiring me to give. But every one of us must give. Now, let's just apply it first and then let me take it outside. Let's apply it first to this church. Ask yourself, honestly, do you give to this church? Do you know how many people don't give to this church and they come and they sit under the preaching and they worship with the band every week, but they don't give anything to this church? There's so many principles in the Bible you give to your church so that they could do the work that God is asking them to do. But this series, believe it or not, this series is not about getting you to give more money to Cornerstone. In fact, it's not at all about that. It's about unlocking each of our hearts with generosity so that our fingers uncurl, knowing everything we have belongs to God and being compassionate towards the poor and towards the ministries of God around the world. Give outside of Cornerstone. Give as the Lord directs, but each one must give. It's a command. If you want to be a generous Christian, it's your responsibility to give. But look at secondly what he says, give thoughtfully. He says, as he has decided in his heart, not as Pastor Tim tells you, not as our elders tell you, not as some television prosperity theologian tells you, no, you give as you have decided in your heart, not emotionally, not impulsively. You know, again, come back to the church. I, wa I watch this and I've done this when the, ba when the basket's being passed and all of a sudden you see it and you hurriedly get into your purse or your wallet and you pull out a few dollars and put it in. That's impulsive giving. That is not, I'd rather you don't give. Don't give. That's not good giving. Give as you have decided in your heart, not emotionally, not impulsively, but with great thought, careful consideration. Give like the way we do. We visualize the impact that our gift is going to have on the recipient. We visualize the relief that they're going to get. That God, you saw my need. We give as often as we can, Denise and I, anonymously, so that we don't get credit, that they can see that God, their father, knows their needs, and God moved through his people to give to them. That way God gets the glory. God gets the honor. They're going to feel hope. They're going to see that they themselves could be generous givers too. Here's the problem with impulsive giving. It's often not done in wisdom and, dis and uh, discernment. And it's almost never generous enough. How ironic that impulsive buying works the exact opposite. It's almost always more than what we should have spent. And we did not think through it until after the money fled from our hands. Boy, I learned that the hard way years ago. We had three kids at the time. And Denise and I, I think it was probably me. All these stupid ideas come from me usually. I said, okay, we're going to be a kayaking family. So we went to Whitehall, we went to Grape Street, we went to the Army Navy store, met the manager, Steve, 
And we walked out of there, five kayaks, $2,500. I go home that night. I couldn't even sleep. I got out of our bed. I go to the couch. I'm tossing and turning. I couldn't get rest. The entire night I'm going, God, what did I do? What did I do? This was a mistake. We go back the next morning. And I went up to Steve and I said, Steve, I made a terrible mistake. And I explained what I did and that I wanted to return four of the five kayaks. And he said, no problem. He said, I went into Walmart just for no reason, came out with a $1,000 MacBook. I understand what it's like. But that's impulsive buying, and that is never a good idea. We give as we have decided in our hearts. Point number three, we give freely, not reluctantly, not under compulsion. My son, Andy's baseball coach, attended a church, a massive church, huge church. And in that church, when you joined, it was required of you, some of you are going to hate this, I would, to show them your W-2 statement. So they learned exactly what you earned. And then they set the amount that you should be giving to the church. My son's baseball coach found out I was a pastor. He goes, yeah, I left my church. I said, why'd you leave? He goes, well, I sent them in a $500 check. They sent it back to me on cash with a note that said, you're giving far below what you ought to be. Increase it to this amount and resend it. He says, that's it, I left. I would have left too. That is not the gospel. Don't ever sit under preaching long where they're telling you how much you ought to be giving. It is to be freely giving, not reluctantly, not under compulsion. Give freely. No body of authority should apply some biblical socialism through extraction to you. No promise. That is a lie that you give this, you're going to get this much back from God. God does not delight in a miserly, grudgingly giver. He wants you to be cheerful in that's the final point. Give cheerfully, for God loves a cheerful giver, verse 7. In fact, Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive, and how true that is, how enjoyable it is to be able to bless someone you know will receive it wisely. But I think it's an amazing statement. Look at it again. You should underline this, I think, or highlight it. The end of verse 7, God loves a cheerful giver. Let me tell you what it doesn't say. God loves it when we give cheerfully. That is not personal. No, God loves a cheerful giver. There's something about a cheerful giver that pulls out a greater degree of of love from God's heart. You learn to give cheerfully and God's love will be even greater for you. He loves a cheerful giver. And when we give generously, he is going to open his hand with blessings. You will be supremely satisfied with what you have. He loves a cheerful giver. Look at chapter 8, verse 9. It's on the screen. Mike Capaldi said it last week. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Nobody's outgiven God. And we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a minute as the quintessential greatest display of God's giving ever by giving his son. But I've got to leave you with something practical. Here's where you can now engage where the rubber meets the road. You put it in gear. 
I'm gonna give you the most practical four steps you can take. How do you apply these truths? Here we go, number one. Boy, I would really encourage you to do this today. Before the Super Bowl, go through your house. If you have children, if you're married, take your family with you. Let them participate with you. If you're by yourself, that's fine. Go through your house, put a sticker on anything you no longer need. Anything you haven't used, your garage, your closet, your cupboards, your sheds, anything you no longer need and consider giving it away or selling it and giving the money to God's kingdom or to the poor people around you. I would really encourage you to do that today and do it with your children. Teach them how to live for the kingdom of God. They will never forget it. Number two, Consider giving up a monthly expense. Maybe it's Netflix, Disney Plus, maybe it's a magazine subscription, maybe it's cable TV, I don't know what it is for you. But consider giving up a monthly expense and decide as a family where to invest that money. Decide as a family where to invest that money. Sit down with them and talk. That's what we did. It was amazing. Number three, if any of you do this one, I'm going to get a bottle of champagne and pop the cork with you. And I hate champagne. I never drink this stuff. But I'll do it with this one because this would be amazing. Invite an elder to sit down with you and help you examine to see if you are a generous giver. And don't make it one way. You could do the same thing for that elder. Listen, if you invite me, we're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to talk about a lot of things. Invite an elder into your life. Open up your heart and deprivatize your life. Elders are to shepherd your souls. It will change your life potentially. Number four, discern wisely any discretionary purchases. Discretionary purchases are wants, not needs. Things you want, but not things you need. How do you do it? How do you discern wisely? Let me give you three ways. Have I truly, sincerely prayed? Asking God if he is okay if I spend his money on that purchase. Sometimes you're going to hear God give you an absolute peace about it. And other times you're going to hear, you're going to feel that peace pulled away from you. And that is a hard no. Is there potential for this purchase to draw me away from serving God faithfully? Is there a potential for this purchase to draw me away from serving God faithfully? You know, we have a family in our church who has the financial means to buy a lake house, and they thought about it. They used to have one. They came to me and they said, we're not going to get one. I said, why? Because the last time we had a lake house, we spent almost every weekend up at that lake house and not at our church serving faithfully. So we're not buying one. I find that heroic. Is it wrong to buy a lake house? No. Is it wrong to buy a nice thing? No. Is it wrong to buy anything that's going to take you away from serving God faithfully? Yes. Finally, in making this purchase, would it decrease the amount I have that I could give to those in need. If you want to buy something 
And it's going to tighten you up so, so much in your finances that you will not be able to give generously. That is not a purchase you need to be making. But how do you delineate the poor? I, I keep telling you there are circumstantial poor and there are irresponsible poor. Circumstances change. You lose your job. You get sick. You can't work. You're in need. You can't make your monthly bills. We are responsible as a church to help them. Irresponsible poor, you've got the means, but you keep spending it on things you ought not to. You have a closed fist and you will not give generously. Therefore, God has withheld his generosity to you. You don't give money to them. You come alongside them lovingly. You help them learn to get back on their feet. But until they are circumstantially poor, you do not give. That's my principle. Are you generous? Are you generous towards God's kingdom and to the poor and the needy? Well, as we move into the Lord's Supper and those who are going to serve, if you could come on down. And Randy, if you could hold out the trays for them, I would appreciate that. I'm going to teach you something that is not taught very often in the Lord's Supper. Something that I think I've neglected to teach you. And so I'm going to ask you to do something that I find difficult personally. And that is to actually pay attention to what I'm saying while you're waiting for the trays to come to you. I get too distracted. But can you try to listen really carefully to this? Everybody knows, everybody knows that we're about to celebrate the union that we have in Jesus. I'm going to unpack that in a minute. We're about to celebrate that. But what most people don't know is that you're not only celebrating the union you have with Jesus. Listen, this is utterly important. You're celebrating the union you have with your brothers and sisters in this church. Do you understand that? If you're a believer, if you put your faith in Jesus, you're welcome to take this cup. If you have not yet done that, we would ask that you abstain from this and that you would pray and put your faith in Jesus and be saved and so that you can participate in the future. The Lord's Supper reminds us that because of our faith, we are in Christ. He is in us. We have a union with him. But we also have a union with our brothers and sisters in Jesus. In fact, listen to the Westminster Confession. Look on the screen. All saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, and being united to one another in love, should be relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities. You know what that's saying? That if there is somebody who is struggling and in need in our church, to the degree that you are able, you are their solution. To the degree that I am able, I am their solution. Not, Lord, I hope somebody in the church steps up and helps. To the degree that you are able, trust God. You are the solution, and he's given to you so that through you, others can be provided for. So open your eyes. The Lord's Supper is opening your eyes to the union you have in Christ, but also the solidarity of the union you have with each other in this church. And we bear responsibility for one another. Would you think on that for a few minutes, pray through that, and then I'll guide us as the men come back up.